Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Today, we're going to be delving into the outlaw history of Northern California cannabis. Once upon a time, there was something called CAMP, the Campaign Against Marijuana Planting. And it was this multi-agency law enforcement task force. Yeah, that's a lot of copy words in, in <laughs> one fucking name, right? They were managed by the California Department of Justice and composed of local, state, and federal agencies that organized for the express purpose of eradicating cannabis cultivation and trafficking in California. Oh my God, what a shithouse, huh, Bean? Yeah, this is why there is now, currently, no cannabis in Northern California because of CAMP and their successful campaign. Also, this is probably the worst camp that you can go to. There are no s'mores. There are all narcs. So fuck this camp. People have heard us talk a lot on this show about the war on drugs. And we often talk about two groups that were particularly targeted, which is people of color, people in the inner cities, people involved in the cannabis uh, distribution end of it. And of course, up in Northern California, in more rural areas, are growers. And so this is a story about those growers up in Humboldt, up in the Emerald Triangle, organizing to literally fuck with these cops, to fuck with their little camp party, and to warn all the locals when these raids were going to happen. And this is a region that's storied for having some of the best cannabis in the world, all the way up until today, right? And we're talking about an actual war with helicopters raining down from the sky, coming down there just to destroy all the cannabis, just to chop plants, right? And just to fucking drag them away, basically. And our guest today, Agnes Paddock, is the person who was on the radio warning the locals about those raids, about those helicopters. She's a lifelong environmental and criminal justice activist who's lived in Humboldt, California, for 43 years. So she is in there deep. She's in that world. She's out there fighting the fucking man. Absolutely. We're going to hear about two groups that she was fundamental in helping to found. One is the Civil Liberties Monitoring Project, which is this group of locals who would, in essence, monitor the police. Where are these helicopters about to go? What about all these cops that just showed up in town? Where are they going to go with their big rental cars and warning the locals over the airways? And those airways were on K-Mud, a community-supported radio station in Humboldt, still active to this day. And all of this has its roots in the 1980s. So we're talking about the relaunch of the war on drugs. We're talking about the Reagan era. We're talking about a time that was extremely difficult for the whole cannabis community. You know, this was not long after the conflict in Vietnam. Many of the helicopter pilots that were flying and terrorizing these people got their training and their attitude towards the war on drugs from a literal war of colonialism that we had waged halfway around the world. And now this war is being brought home to our own cannabis community. And we are so honored. And I really think that this episode gets at the heart of what Great Moments in Weed History is about. Of course, we love 
The stories of our celebrities like Willie Nelson smoking a joint on the roof of the White House, our literal first episode, but our real mission is to bring this kind of outlaw resistance history to you, and I can't think of a better story or a better person than our guest on this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And Agnes is also just a really lovely person. I think that, you know, it goes to show that, you know, some of the most badass, unsilenceable activists out there, you know, when you sit down and talk with them, you realize that they're just very nice, lovely, loving people, right? And that's the reason that they're out fighting for the things they're fighting for, because there's this sense of justice in them, you know, that just does not feel satisfied by the world that they look around in. And Agnes is just really cool and very special. And, you know, this was a, just a really excellent conversation. Before we get into it, we'd like to thank everybody who supports us on Patreon. You truly allow us to make this show the way that we want to make it independently. So thank you so much for that support. If you do not support us on Patreon, but you like the show, please check us out on greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You'll find out all the awesome bonuses you can get by supporting us on Patreon, including at a certain level, a copy of Bean's book signed by the man himself. So please check out those incentives. And if you don't have the money right now, but you still love the show, we appreciate you. We appreciate the listen. Please help us out by telling your friends about the show. We are severely shadow banned on every social media platform. So every little bit that you can do to help us spread the word is going to help. All right. I think that's about it. Let's get into this conversation. I've got a nice fat bowl packed up here. Bean, how about yourself? Ooh, I had to dip into my reserve of some real Humboldt County weed uh, gifted from a fan of this podcast straight from the fields of Humboldt right to my lungs. I am so excited to get blazed and get into this story. But maybe you are not ready. I hope you're excited. But maybe you're not ready. Those are the two things we're looking for, a sense of excitement and a readiness. If you're not ready, that's cool. Just hit pause. I mean, you know this is coming. I, I would hope that you'd be ready. But if you're not, easy fix. Just hit pause. I'm going to say roll up a joint the size of your middle finger for this episode. Of course, if you'd rather split a blunt, pack a bong, pack a bowl, and dabulate a dab. It's all up to you. What I can guarantee you is that when you are ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. Agnes Patak, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. We're so glad to have you. Usually how we start these interviews is by asking our guests the same question. How did you first come into contact with our favorite plant, with cannabis? Oh, it had to have been my teenage years in the 1960s. Um, I went to Hollywood High School. Um, it was a great time to be in Hollywood. And uh, yeah, it was there. It, I, I don't want to say, well, it was... Um, 
I had a, an incredible art teacher. Let's put it that way at Hollywood High School. <laughs> Quick shout out to all the cool art teachers out there. <laughs> Statue of limitations long since passed, so no worries there. <laughs> uh, our story today, of course, brings us to Northern California. And I'm wondering, how did you end up making that journey from growing up in Hollywood to the famed Emerald Triangle of Northern California? I first came up here in the late 60s. Um, I wanted to get away from the city and I came up north here um, with my husband at the time. But it was, uh, there weren't a whole lot of people there and being, you know, native and Spanish, I guess they didn't like my looks. You know, like I went into a restaurant and they, you know, when we didn't even want to serve me and I went, I'm not sure about this, you know, but I loved, I loved the Redwoods and I loved the area. So I ended up moving to San Luis Obispo County for 10 years. And then um, I was uh, fighting Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. And I knew that I, there was no way, I mean, I wanted to evacuate before I was forced to. And so and I knew the only place I wanted to move to was the Redwoods. And that ultimately, as you said, led you to the Redwoods, led you to Humboldt County. And if my timeline is correct, you were part of what's come to be known as the Back to the Land movement. What were your impressions of that Back to the Land movement? What was that community like in Humboldt when you arrived? And, and how were you able to integrate into it? Um, one of the first things I did when I came up here was I'd read the bulletin boards and I saw a calling for people that wanted to save the Sinkione wilderness. And so I immediately became involved with that. And I found the community very loving and very open, you know, potlucks. Everyone always came together with food. And I, I just loved, I love the idea of starting your own school, your own, you know, um, medical buildings. It, it was just something that was warmed my heart. Well, when I, when I first came up here, you know, uh, in 1979, 1980, and I'd visit my friends and I'd see all their marijuana plants and I was going, I'm in heaven. You know, I didn't think at that time anyone was thinking of the future. They were thinking, wow, you know, I love to smoke pot, have a little extra, sold it to their friends. I could get new tires for my car, some new clothes for my kids. Um, and I think that's really what it was about. It wasn't, nobody had any idea in their mind that, you know, this was going to be their you know, their future way of making a living. One of the things that attracted people to Humboldt County at that time was its remoteness. Uh, and of course, its incredible natural landscape, which allowed people to not just be able to afford land, but to be able to grow cannabis in a place where you were far from any neighbors, you were far from the prying eyes of law enforcement. At the time that you got there is just on the cusp of the sort of relaunching of the drug war under Ronald Reagan. You know, in the late 70s, it's still the Carter administration. Can you kind of paint a picture for us? What were the what are the cannabis farms that you visited or your friends were growing or that you were involved in? What were they like? Oh, they were beautiful. I mean, people were finally, it was just when all the sense of me, it was really becoming, you know, people were beginning to understand this is what it's about, the females. It's, you know, and so you, everyone was always 
at that, you know, at 1980, everyone was always sharing their gardens. You can't, it wasn't even called, called a garden. It was like, you want to see my patch? You want to see what I got growing in my patch? And you'd go to the patch and, you know, and you got to see all different, and it just made you excited, you know, and, and then you'd go to parties and everybody was just so excited to share all their buds they had and their smoke. And, you know, those were good times. And, and then it became where everyone was growing a little bit more and, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be showing this off and it became more reclusive um you know he stopped having those potluck parties and it was more focused on um you know on, on the herb and then all of a sudden i believe it was 1983 at the end of 83 and where i lived on the matole river my outhouse was out in the open it was on the kind of a side of a hill people used to call it the throne and i was out on the throne and um i heard this weird noise i'm going what the and i look up and there is a double Huey helicopter, one of the ones left over from the Vietnam War. I mean, the guy was so low, I could see his face, the boots. I was, and I just, you know, closed my eyes and just flipped him off, held my you know, arm in the air and flipped him off. I mean, it was just, I couldn't believe what I was experiencing. And that was some of, that was, that was the first time the helicopters came. And then next year, of course, it was camp. And after that, people were, became very secretive. Um, they didn't want their kids' friends to come over to know what they were doing. It was, um, you know, the energy just kind of changed around it. But I, I don't think it would have if it hadn't been for, you know, camp. You know, if it hadn't been for the helicopters. And those helicopters, I mean, we had a lot, we had a lot of Vietnam veterans around here. And when those helicopters start coming, oh my gosh, there was, you know, a good handful of suicides because of that from Vietnam vets. That's an incredibly harrowing story. And also what a scene for, you know, for the beginning of your experience with the air raid program. What was going on? Can you describe for us how camp came about and why they started doing those air raids? Well, campaign was uh, uh, the camp, uh, campaign against marijuana planting, and it consisted of um, your local, state, and federal agencies, all cops, and they um, and they would come. And not only do they have helicopters, they have convoys, and they would just raid. They had no warrants. Nothing. They would just come on your property. It was, and then in 1986, is I think the lawsuit happened um, down in San Francisco, and Judge Aguilar ruled in our favor and said, "No, you can't go flying over, you know, without a warrant." And so the rule was set that they had to stay within a 500-foot curtilage of your of your property. Of course, that really was a joke. They really, you know, that didn't last. And then the Supreme Court of of uh, California, I believe, it was in like 1989, or um, you know, reversed it and said, yeah, you can go in and just keep raiding with no warrants. And there was a group of us that said, this is wrong. We've got to stop this. And um, at that time, you know, all we had were CBs, CB radios and bulletin boards. And But we, you, you know, utilized them. And we, it was a group of us that met and said, we've got to, we got to follow these guys. we got to see that's, you know, what they're doing. And uh, what happened was we would find out where they, you know, where they were. We heard up there, the first time we heard their new Harris. And and so five of us got in my old Valiant car and um, we drove out there, but it started raining and they left. So we didn't get to you know, see them. But we realized at that moment that we really had to form some kind of organization, um, which became um, 
COG, Citizens Observation Group, and we had meetings, and um, and then it was decided there should be a group in each, you know, in each area, because it's a widespread area and different, you know, um, watersheds. So in each one of those, there were a group of people, and when, when they heard people, you know, a, a neighbor was getting camped on, then they would go and observe and take pictures and take notes of everything that was going down. And then in 1987, when KMUD Radio came on air, when we, you know, that was happened, um, that that was the one place you turned to. I mean, everybody listened from early in the morning because people would call up and we would announce where they were. There's a convoy that's been seen, you know, heading east on Bryceland Road. You know, it's now going up. The convoy's on China Creek. So anybody in that area would know, you know, and everybody always had some kind of plan, you know, if they heard it was in your area and where to run to. I had a friend that said, if this happened to me, I'm just going to go out in the woods and drink wine. And she had a basket with wine and food she kept by the door and indeed when she got camped on she grabbed her thing and just you know went out in the woods and drank her wine as they were raiding her property wow agnes um i really want to just express how how much we appreciate that work that you did and how frightening must that have been to find yourself in the position of basically doing surveillance on the police what what were the risks of that and what made it so important to you that 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 you had to uh, push through those fears. Well, I think it was important to document what the police were doing. We were living in a police state. You know, Rod Deal, you know, wrote a beautiful song, you know, living in a police state. And we were, they were, you know, the cops everywhere. And if, and, you know, they would get away. They To this day, they always get away with what they can. Well, you know, we weren't going to allow that to happen. No, you know, we wanted to document this. It was, you know, it scared the children. My gosh, my stepdaughter, she got off, you know, stepped off the school bus, her and her friend, and a helicopter just covered right over them as they walked up the hill to their house. You know, it's it was just horrible. For me, one day I went out and I decided to check on some plants I had on the other side of, you know, it was dirt road and as I'm climbing up there, there's two guys in camo outfits just walking on this, pe- you know, on this on this trail on my land. And I was like, and I was living, I was living by myself with my two kids, and I had a friend over, my girlfriend, and I just said, "What are you doing?" And this is, my-. and I just started screaming at them. They started running, and I chased after them. And I'm going, "Rob, get the rifles, get the guns!" I'm sure, of course, we had no guns, but I thought if I screamed that, at least they would get scared and keep running. And as a friend said, they probably ran all the way to San Francisco the way I was you know acting um but those were the things you just had to do it was just like you never knew who you were going to find on your land it, it was it was very nervous it was it it was you know it's bringing back a lot of bad memories that you know it, in a time when i think about what we went through and i'm so happy that everyone can smoke now you know and who would have thought that you know bill mauer and woody harrelson would be opening up some fancy you know dispensary spa in west hollywood or that you know when you look at pictures of kids on buses and partying and you know like when we were young and we smoked it was maybe because it was so new but like an, an elder native elder said you know what's wrong with people sitting around in a circle smoking and talking and talking things out and I think that's what it was for a lot of people it was a really you know marijuana was conscious raising for so many of us and I don't know if it's in that same place today because of all the commercialization but what we went through so that you can do that now 
I just don't think people really understand, you know, it was, oh yeah, so you had some cops. No, it was, it was a police state. It was a living hell, you know, every day, getting your kids to school, driving, always turning on the radio. Where are they today? Oh, convoy going up on Alder Point Road, you know, oh, they're going over, you know, and, uh, you know, Little Buck Mountain. Oh, they're doing this, you know, they would just, you know, name all, it, it was, it was really, it was really intense. I don't know how to put it into words other than a friggin' living hell. Mm. I, I also want to, I, I want to backtrack because I, I describe these places as, as farms. And, and I, I realized that homesteads uh, was probably the right term. I've, I've uh, had the good fortune, Abdul and I have both had the good fortune of spending some time up in Humboldt. And you can still find uh, some of these old homesteads, hand-built homes from found material, fell wood. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people, they weren't uh, growing uh, tons of plants and shipping it all over the country and trying to become rich. They, these were people just trying to supplement their incomes and, and make ends meet, correct? Correct. I mean, correct. I mean, like I said, when I first started growing, they got, you know, if they sold, sold a little bit to their old high school friends, and to this day, my husband still sells to his old high school friends what little we have. <laughs> So, so just not not to not to go too far ahead, but you you still have a connection and a love for this plant that comes through. And, and that oh my gosh, yes, I do. <laughs> so, so to to jump to another, you know, one of your passions or you know a big part of your experience broadcasting. Can you tell us how you initially got into broadcasting and how that ended up, uh, you know, enmeshing itself with your uh, passion for your cannabis community there? Uh, well, we. We were always listening to a radio station, you know, out in the Mendocino Coast or, you know, wherever we were. And a group of people thought, you know, we need to have um, we need to have a radio station. We thought maybe we could just, you know, become um, a link to KPFA in Berkeley. And then we realized, no, you know what? We can do this ourselves. And we started KMUD Radio with $15,000. We went around and, you know, and it, we, we rented a little cottage, you know, on the southern end of town and I was there when we did you know we pre-tested it with the only five watts I had just come back from Big Mountain Arizona and I did a report on that and then we you know we started and it, it was to, you know we started because we wanted to have our own music and and it was just incredible when we started. We needed to hear ourselves, our own voices, and it was just a wonderful way to do that. And then, and um, and then marijuana played a part of it because you know some of the money I'm sure that we started came from marijuana money. You know, it was it was it was good that we you know that we had someone there that always reported. But you know, it was hard. It was hard when you heard a friend got camped on. You know, it was really it. Yeah, I, I I appreciate. I know that this is hard for you to talk about, and and I appreciate you sharing this. And I think that what you said earlier is is really vital. That people now who are living in this new world of legalization really need to hear these stories, and also people who are still living in the world of prohibition need to hear these stories to be inspired and to understand that. Uh, it, it is a struggle, and it does take uh, concerted effort to 
change these laws and that the authorities themselves are not going to stop unless we push back uh, against them. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of tell us what the effect would be on on a family to be to be hit with uh, a raid like this. What happened? What would the aftermath be? Um, well, it meant uh, if you didn't have any money buried in the ground, <laughs> you were going to have a hard year. And But a lot of people, you know, we helped each other. This is a very giving community. When we came here, like, like you said, you know, we were homesteaders and we started our own schools. You know, we started a health center. We even started banking. I mean, all, all of it. You always had your community to rely on. Um, and I can't say enough about this community. Um, it's uh, It's gone through a lot of changes, but for the ones that are still here, we're here. And um, we're always here for each other. After Prop 215 actually goes through, right? Of course, th- there's like a, a, a massive effort, you know, grassroots effort to, to get some kind of uh, legal status for medical cannabis, right? Once that happens, can you describe how things changed or perhaps did not change uh, in regards to, to camp raids uh, and also the cannabis community there? But the only thing that changed was that you... Um... If you had a 215, you printed it out big and you put it in your garden. So when they came to raid, they could see that you had an actual, you know, you could, you, you were a 215 medical patient. Um, but I, I personally, you know, it really, you had your 215 card, but I really didn't see much difference. I mean, I had my card and the only time it saved me, I think you guys will really appreciate this story. I had gone down to the city and I, 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 I to meet a friend and believe it or not, I forgot to bring the, you know, this pound of herb I was going to sell. So we had to come back in the middle of the night and believe it, I get pulled over by a, uh, a cop right off the Kovalo, if you know that 101 right off there. So I pull over and, uh, he says, uh, he goes, you know, step out of the car, you know, and, and my friend was a native brother. And so when he gets out of the car, he has his hands in the air because he knows better. And he says, okay, sir, you can put your hands down. And they, they wanted to know um, if we had any marijuana. And we said no, but they found my friends in his uh, sleeping bag. And he goes, you lied. And he goes, well, you know, so they searched my whole car. And I had had some, um, you know, items for a Native American ceremony with me. And so when the cop, he goes, look, he goes, he goes well, look, you know, so, I mean, I had my 215. That was the important. He goes, well, since you have a 215, I'm going to give you his marijuana. So he gives me my friend's weed, like I'm not going to give it back to him, you know. And he found some money in my car and I, in my purse. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I lost my wedding band. My husband gave me this money to buy a wedding band. Don't you dare take that money. They didn't. And then the cop turns to me and he goes, ma'am, you know, when I was searching your, 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 your things, I, I came across your, your native uh, uh, things. I said, yes. And he goes, is anything going to happen to me? 
<laughs> you should have been like, yeah, your fucking dick's gonna fall off, you fucking dick. <laughs> I, just, I just said, uh, no, you're, you're just doing your job. I know, but is anything gonna be happening to, to me? I said, I'll say a prayer and protect you, sir. And he goes, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. you know, it was just, and then we drove off. It took me a half hour to stop laughing. You know? <laughs> oh, we, we very much do appreciate that story. And I think that will be one among several uh, great moments uh, in weed history in this episode. Mm-hmm. So I'm so happy <laughs> that with us. Uh, getting getting back to this crackdown and the, and the helicopters, this had a profound effect on the way cannabis was grown. You know, now ask people to picture uh, a cannabis cultivation and they'll either think of a big factory grow, they might think of somebody's indoor grow in a closet, or they might... Think of a licensed uh, small farm with a hundred plants right on the land. But during this era of the helicopter raids, what were the techniques that were used to conceal these grows and to keep them hopefully away from the police? Greenhouses. A lot of people, um, you know, start growing inside greenhouses, and then you learned all about mites and everything else. Um, and of course, they got, you know, like I, I planted some in a greenhouse, but then I bought these little, you know, I went to, a, you know, a store and got little fake-looking apples and stuff, and so I hung, you know, red apples so it looked like tomatoes were growing. You know, I mean, everybody had their own technique, but then, then people went indoors, and that is the saddest story of all of this, the generators, the generators and the indoor. And um, and you, I'm telling you, you could tell what was grown indoor and outdoor. They say, uh, if you grew outdoors in full sun and then you went indoors, it just, you know, and the noise of the generators all night long, it just, you know, neighbors, that were friendly neighbors became enemies. Um, it was just horrible. And I mean, to this day, you know, it's, you can't talk about generators. It people just, it has. It was such a terrible, terrible, terrible time. And then, um, and then they, when they started going in the greenhouses, they would do these all night debts. So of course, you have a generator all and lights. You'd have, you know, you'd look out in the middle of the night and see this bright white light in the side of a mountain. And of course, they turn them off during the daytime. Um, but it it was just a horrible, horrible time. And I just personally had a hard time ever wanting to smoke anything that was grown indoors because of that generator, the amount of pollution that went on, you know, having to take all that gas and there'd be gas leaks. It was just not good for Mother Earth to have that kind of thing going on. And uh, but people got really good at camouflage. You know, you um, plant flowers and you know, all kinds of sunflower and then put your plants in between them. Um, or you'd lay them down flat and then you could put other, you know, plants on top of them. I mean, when people, you know, got very creative. Yeah. And it's interesting what you're saying that, you know, indoor grows, which are pretty much synonymous with modern high grade cannabis in California, were actually put in place as a reaction to the raids. So, so that initially, if it wasn't for those raids, maybe sun grown cannabis would have still remained the standard to this day, and we'd be operating this industry without as much waste or pollution. Well, I'm telling you right now, the best weed, like, you know, the Emerald Cup for two years in a row was Ridgeline Farms, all outdoor, 
all outdoor. And, you know, there, there's a whole, you know, Redwood Roots, I'm sure you're aware of, and they're a collective and they're all outdoor. You know, um, I know, I'm sure some of you are aware of my daughter, Sunshine Sarasota, dry farming outdoors, doesn't even use water or fertilizer and grows the most beautiful, <laughs> incredible marijuana, you know, so everyone has to find their way but you know the people that have their permits they they just it's all outdoors they'll have greenhouses that open up you know they might close them for that some of that depth stuff but it's outdoors and here that i think because in this community you know we've we've had to, um We've had so much environmentalism, you know, and trying to save headwaters forests and the sinking own wilderness and trying to stop, you know, the cutting of all the old growth trees. And people are aware of that. So they, they understand, um, you know, that, that, that nat the naturalness that goes in to having it growing in the sun and, in, you know, and in the earth as opposed to pots in the earth with lights in a building. Mm. I think we did go to Sunshine's farm, actually, right? And yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. I'm proud of my daughter. It's really funny because, you know, when she was little, you know, you know, people turn to go, well, you know, my mom, Agnes, because I was just well known for all my activism. And so now when, you know, people say, I go, well, you know, my daughter, Sunshine, because now she's the one that's doing a lot of the activism. Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm wondering what, when you got a sense that Humboldt County specifically was uh, becoming known, not just locally, but uh, nationally and even globally as a area of cannabis cultivation and if there were any like particular strains that were a part of that you know what 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 was that history and journey like I think a lot of people came to Humboldt County um, for reggae on the river, you know, the big reggae festival that happened every summer. And people came from all over the country for that. And they, if they didn't know about Humboldt, you know, we, they found out. <laughs> I think, I mean, I used to run the press tent and one time, you know, we brought in this big cola. It must've been a foot long bed. And these Jamaicans just went nuts. <laughs> you know, they'd never seen, you know, I was interviewing, I forgot who it was. He just couldn't stop touching it and looking at why he was trying to answer the question. Um, I, it, you know, it's, it has an incredible reputation, and you know, and, you know, people took it across country. My, one of my fun stories: I had a friend that uh, you know took. Uh, now people take hundreds of pounds, but he was taking thirty pounds across to the East Coast, and it was right after nine eleven. So he just put two big American flags on the truck, you know, and go America bumper sticker, and drove across with everybody honking and waving at him while he had all this weed in his truck. <laughs> well, we got to go to reggae on the river. Uh, I think it's a, it's an absolute. It's coming back. It's not happening this year, but we're bringing it back in 2023. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, I've never been myself. Oh. <gasps> yeah. 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 I know. I know. It's high time I went. Yeah. <laughs> I've emceed that show for years. <laughs> uh, I've heard so much about it from. Uh, the local cannabis community who grows outdoor, by the way. I don't talk to the indoor guys. Yeah. <laughs> and and just on a, on a broader sense, you know, for all of the uh, negative attention that 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 this cultivation brought from law enforcement, there was also a lot of positives that came out of having this in the economy locally. How did cannabis money? 
during the time when when you know an, an outdoor pound of weed would would fetch five thousand dollars or more how did that flow into the community and how did it uh create a local culture yeah it was nice to have money in your pocket but um it really helped a lot of other activism. I mean, a lot of people donated a lot of their money to, you know, to different causes that really needed support. And I know that I was fortunate enough that, you know, I know that it really helped us, you know, in our fight to save Headwaters Forest, um, which are old growth redwood trees. And in fact, I have another, I'm full of stories, but when we were saving the sinking on wilderness and we were at four corners out there and uh, one of the main people, I won't say his name and he, he's like doing an interview he's been interviewed by everybody he goes like he goes i need to go take a break you know uh, and he said my house isn't when he went running off and i knew that they were in the middle of harvest and he came back a few hours later and he starts doing interviews and i look down and i can just see little green all stuck to this in front of his sweater and i'm like kind of like holding in front of him so that people wouldn't notice you know because i know he didn't notice so yeah it was uh um it, it was, you know, it, it did help. And, and for me, I was, uh, you know, being part Native American, I, you know, was really involved in Native, Native American struggles. And was I was just, you know, happy that I would, I had money that I could help, you know, for what they were going through, especially a big mountain, Arizona, where they were forcefully trying to remove 10,000 Navajo people off their land. You know, I did a lot of, I was able to do a lot of benefits, you know, to help free Leonard Peltier. But having, and people would come and they would give the money. And we could help them with their lawsuit and what they needed and you know people people did it in a good I'm not one of those people that went out and bought a brand new car I'm just you know <laughs> I wasn't that kind of person and I finally did and you know I put 280,000 miles on it um, but you know people um, you know I think like more the second generation because the, you know the ones that were kids when um, you know when they when the parents were growing you know they could see and then they when they became growers you know um they drove nicer cars and they would go and you know go to bali for a month you know take a vacation but because you know and they did that in the winter time and very much needed because but made people go yeah they were growing we it's a lot of hard friggin' work you know, it's just not, ah, you know, just stick a seed in the ground, it grows. No, I mean, to start the seeds to make sure they're, I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of work. You're always checking them. I mean, it's work. And so to be able to take a break from that and go on a vacation for a month, well, well deserved, well earned. All right. So Agnes, you know, of course, uh, you know, when we get up to recreational legalization in California, right? We also see the recriminalization of people who were once legally licensed to grow cannabis and a comeback of the raids up in Northern California. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened right before then, the anticipation of that law, and then what happened after it went into effect? Well, I personally didn't vote for it you know, because, I, you know, when I, I, I just knew from my experiences that once it became legal, the corporations would take over, which they pretty much have. Um, I see, you know, a lot of people that grew the mom and pops, I'm going to, you know, which I consider my husband and I were mom and pops. We never grew real big. You know, we just weren't, you know, we grew enough to where we could help people. We had some money in our pocket, but the energy changed in a lot of ways. And then it was like, you had to have a permit and what you have to go through to get a permit. I mean, it's just, it, it, it shut down all the mom and pops. It's a, it's a pretty bitter irony that after 
attempting to suppress this cultivation with helicopter raids, literal military equipment and uh, long prison sentences and the violation of people's civil rights that the actual eradication of a lot of these mom and pop farms was through bureaucracy. Um, and I think that that's a really important lesson for people in other places that are just now beginning to look at legalization to take from from your story and the story of your uh, community. I, I, I want to ask is, uh, are you still involved with uh, Kmart at this point? Oh, I do two shows a week. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, 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 you know, I've been there ever since it went on air and I'm still there. I've always done the Native American programming. In fact, on 420 was a Wednesday, my show's on Wednesday, and I interviewed um, a Navajo man that's really involved with, um, you know, the medicine in the Southwest. It was really interesting stories. And um, and then I, on every Sunday, I do the World Beat Show and I play music from Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, dance music. Get everybody up and moving because, you know, that's just an important thing to do. <laughs> your body awesome mm -hmm. well i want to mention to all of our listeners anywhere around the world you can tap into this community you can tap into kmud online it is streaming it is archived you can uh participate in this culture from afar listen to agnes's incredible programming and and my daughters <laughs> sunshine and my sunshine. daughter does she does two cannabis shows. She does a monthly, the cannabis tree, and then every Monday they do. She does a cannabis show with somebody else. They they share the time together. That's yeah, and also shout out Sunshine who gave me a jar of uh, infused honey when we went up to her farm uh, up north, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. I consumed the entire thing. <laughs> she always says, you know, she learned from the best me, you know. Yeah, I had to have my kids help, you know. <laughs> and, you know, talking about the helicopters, I, I had a friend that was visiting from Oregon, and, she, you know, I said, hey, I'm, you know, why don't you, why don't you come down and help me harvest for a couple of days? And uh, and I was telling about the helicopters. She goes, well, I don't want to be, you know, I said, don't worry, nothing. Will well, sure enough, we're in the side of the mountain. We have these big you know, beach of us are carrying two big, huge black garbage bags, and we hear the, hear the helicopters. And I said, see that get, get duck, duck in that bush right now, just duck, you know, throw those bad duck, you know. And she's like, what? She's freaking that thing, just hovered over us, but, you know, kept going. And uh, she, we got to the house, and she got in the car and went home. She just, you know, really scared her. Um, and, and then I think the one thing we haven't talked about is Operation Green Sweep. Um, which was a federal military raid, a two-week raid that they were going to come here and just, you know, get everybody. And they came um, the week of reggae on the river, the week, week right before. And my husband was working down at the site, and I was home. And you know, when we bought the uh, when I bought the place, you know, the, the people I bought it from had been taking water from across the river, but I never did. But we never took the water line down. I just kind of hung there. Well, that hell, the first time that you know. Um, black helicopter came um, it just you know it hovered right over there and I got used to it every day it would come you know well after reggae on the river my husband coming he, he hears he goes oh my god the radar I go honey they've been here all week you know it's okay you know and it but it was horrible and what, nobody would have known about it how it came about but a friend of mine his daughter and son were you know walking in the you know to, in the behind their house out out 
out near the ocean and they all of a sudden they see you know four military five military guys in a military truck you know on a private road and they're going what what are they doing and it was operation green sweep and they really came in and it was the worst two weeks of you know i mean to bring the military in for a plant that's going out of the ground when you know, it really was a war. That's when you realize this is a war going on. And and that's the, the federal government as opposed yeah. to, uh, you know, the, the state or municipal government as was initially conducting those raids. Like that's camp was a uh, was a, a state level effort. Right. So- yeah. Well, the thing with the camp cops was that a lot of them were cops from Southern California. You know, they had a two week vacation and they would volunteer. A lot of them were volunteers and they would come up here and treat the people like the worst criminals. I, I remember one time, you know, three of three of us went out with um, uh, there was a public affairs program that came out of San Francisco. It wasn't vice, but something like that. And so they, we rode up to where uh, it was actually in Mendocino County. It was happening up in Spy Rock that day. And we went up there and how they treated this woman and her children. I mean, and you know, Vice was interviewing afterwards and she's trying to be real stoic, you know. And when they put the mic down, I just took her in my arms and she cried in my arms for five minutes. I mean, it was just it was so demeaning and, you know, and they weren't even getting paid for it. They volunteered to do it. Wow, that's insane. And so like, you know, cops are literally saying to themselves, oh, if I go volunteer for this, it's relatively safe, right? Obviously, because these are not like armed criminals we're talking about. They're farmers. Uh, And also they sort of get to flex a little bit and honestly probably get to pocket a little bit of that weed that they're raising. Oh, they sure did. In fact, even the media people, I remember one time when we went and followed, you know, one of the groups out and of course they would let the media in, but they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't let us in. We had to stay out in the area. And then the the guy came back and his pockets were full and I'm going, I said, they let you have it. I said, oh, well, I told him I had a sample, you know, I had to tell him, you know, talk to people about it, take pictures and stuff. And then actually let this you know journalist take a handful of weed <laughs> fucking Geraldo Rivera how about if we could bring it back around this has been so inspiring so enlightening of a conversation I really appreciate you reliving some of these really difficult moments with us i would love to hear about a great moment i would love to hear about a time maybe a harvest scene or maybe the best cannabis that you have ever sampled in decades of living in humboldt county Uh, you know what 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 were the kind of moments that made this struggle and this way of life worth it for you i don't know i think it's sharing with my friends that, you know, they'd come up to, you know, uh, trim. That was one thing, you know, you'd bring your friends into trim and it would always be a lot of fun. And the one time we, we grew a hundred plants, you know, and, and my uh, oldest son was bringing a friend in and, I mean, there's this, this uh, you know, Chicano brother from central California, you know, he liked to smoke weed and he walks in the house and there's just weed hanging everywhere. And we told him that the only place we had for him to sleep was in this bed that was under all this weed. And he just 
just goes, am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? <laughs> so it's just moments like that, that, you know, that would put smiles on people's face. And, you know, and one of the funny things was, and we know we grew, it was always, you know, you know, all through the 80s, it was, you know, you know, Sativa Cross or, you know, um, Indica. That was all Indica, Indica. That was, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these names started you know, popping up and we're going, what? You know, I said, oh, do you have any, uh, oh, job, blah, blah, blah. I'm going, I got marijuana. You know, like, what do you mean? You know, oh do, oh, do you have any of this? I'm going, what's that? I said, I have the best marijuana, you know. And I mean, when we did, you know, everyone always had, you know, I mean, I had always had a plant that I knew was the best. And, you know, you had all your stash, but you always had the one jar of when, every, when everything else fails. You know, <laughs> you had the one jar, but no, I, I could, you know, I started smoking when I was in my teens and I'm 73 years old. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. I got my, my pipe and bong right here, although it's really hard for me now that I'm older. So I'm glad that we have gummies. I have to say, you know, I'm happy when I go into the dispensary and, you know, can get gummies and little chocolate bars and, you know, know that I can get high and it's not going to hurt my throat. Um mm -hmm. But um, it's, you know, it's been a part of my life. And, um, you know, it's just uh, on Wednesday, I had gotten a phone call for someone that, you know, I was really nice to. And then I was just fried afterwards because um, I was I didn't want to be nice, but I had to be. And then I had to go on the radio. And we were doing a, a talk show and I was the host that night. And um, and I just I, mean, I said, oh, man, I did. I wish I had a guy, you know, and then someone said, hey, we got a pipe right here. X, and someone got me some smoke. And uh, I took a couple of hits and I was fine. You know? And I just, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's just been a part of my life. And I am so proud of these young kids. My son has a permit. My daughter has a permit. My older son works for a company. And does It's like a distri distributor and he does all their computer work. And my younger son just smokes it. But, you know, it's a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they kind of grew up with it and, um, and it's, you know, a part of their life. And, um, I, I'm proud, I'm proud of our community. I'm proud of these young kids. And I, I really hurt for the people that, you know, just can't grow those 25 plants they want to plant, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so we started this episode with you screaming at police helicopters uh, descending upon your cannabis farm as you were on the throne. And we're ending it appropriately with you screaming at the top of your lungs in support of the next generation of cannabis cultivators in your home county. And that's just absolutely heartening. I mean, I think it's so important, as we've mentioned multiple times on this episode, for younger people, people who are in the cannabis community today, to recognize the sacrifices and struggles made by the people who came before them, like yourself, Agnes, who really fought for our right to cultivate, to consume, to share cannabis. So thank you so much for enlightening us. Thank you so much for just everything you've done for cannabis. And, you know, we are we are real lovers of Humboldt County, and we'll have to put one in the air with you next time we are up there. Thank you so much. Oh, man, I'll bring you on camera and we can talk. Hey. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> If I, if I can have some closing words, is to remember that, um, you know, marijuana is a gift from the creator. It's a, a gift that's been given to us. And, to, and to, you know, when we say sun grown, it comes from the earth and we are part of the earth. And so to always thank Mother Earth for this gift 
when you get it. Absolutely. We'll all remember that. And you, dear listener at home, when you light that next bowl and every bowl or joint or dab after, just remember that this is a gift from the creator. We're blessed to have cannabis in our lives and to be around at this time when it's going through such a renaissance. Agnes, thank you so much for being on Great Moments of Weed History. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.